Okay, so I'm, I'm back from my um, arrest and hiatus from ERR, uh, standing back in from Alan. And I, I, I listened to last week's episode. I did, despite all of the crap that y'all gave me. Um, so I've decided to intro this week. Uh, there are critiques from last week in a series of one-liners that you're not allowed to respond to. Go ahead. It's very good at not responding. That was, that was very good. All right, my first one. Um, Alan sounds like Obama when he says y'all. <laughs> Second one. I'm right about the four-day work week. Third. You ask Alan better questions than you ask me, but I think that's because he's an actual professional who can speak very in intelligently about things. Uh, you both missed a Mace Ballwood reference uh, or an opportunity for Mace Ballwood reference as you talked about why I got arrested in the south of France. Uh, it's not that I don't listen to you. It's that topless beaches and bottomless mimosas don't translate well when your French is shit. And lastly, I'd like to know what the highest jerk score possible is because you both earned it last week. But I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. More importantly, I'm Ace Callwood. And I'm Scott Wayne. And this is Envoy Recorded Radio. All right, so this week's involuntary sponsor is, I hope I pronounced this correctly, the, the Belgian uh, field uh, athlete, Jolien or Jolien Boemko. And Jolien Boemko is a shot putter who volunteered to do the 200 meter, meter hurdles because Belgium, her national team, needed those points in order to qualify for, I think it was the International Athletics Championships. And so there's just these be this beautiful imagery of a shot putter stepping up for her team and running 200 meter hurdles. And she did it fabulously. So yeah. this week's involuntary sponsor, Jolien uh, Boomco, Boomco. Boom quo. Boom quo. It looks like we should figure that out. Is um, this week's sponsor of this episode. Yeah. Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah. Right. Because um, uh, you and I have been talking about Danny Myers can, can't, will, won't quadrants. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. really, really like that layout. So uh, effectively, it's talking about employees in organizations. Danny Meyer, the, the restaurateur and hospitality guru, has, has written extensively about this. And this quadrant that he lays out is people who can do a thing or can't do a thing, so have the technical expertise or don't, and then are willing to do the thing or not willing. So will, won't are the axes. Can, can't, will, won't. So you can have somebody who can but won't. You can have somebody who can but will. So on and so forth. You figure the quadrants out. But I, what struck me to this is can and will, the definition of can shifts here. Yeah. Right. One would expect that we're fielding a person who can run the um, hurdles competitively. And in this instance, in order for her team not to forfeit, can was defined differently. And, was. and that changes yeah. as the as the field, as the landscape or the operating environment shifts as well. All I need somebody to do is finish this race. And if we don't, we fail. But in another week when we've got all of our athletes eligible and, and healthy, I need somebody who can finish their place in this race perhaps. And so I, I really liked, given our 
ongoing conversation that this shifted a little bit. Yeah, the attitude is all there, isn't it? Because yeah. you can imagine at some point when the call went out to the Belgian team of we need somebody to run, people were looking at like the 400 meter runners, the 100 meter sprinters, whoever were on the, the track team. Yeah. And you imagine there was a bit of a lean back at that moment. Mm -hmm. And Julianne in this case leaned forward and said, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. And, you know, couldn't be further from the uh, the professional skill set or, yeah. or the, the, the field that she is focused on but had the attitude of, uh, yeah, I'm willing. And as, we'll, as a and former shot putter uh, whose coach asked him to run the 400 meter because he's like, you're a wrestler and I know you'll just get it done. Uh, I can appreciate that moment and how much it probably sucked to do that thing in her defense. So, yeah, involuntary sponsor. It's interesting we have, we have those requests. I was asked to play for the school football team and yeah. I'm terrible at football. <laughs> because you'll uh, do it. And the, uh, the, the, the coach said, I said, I'm a terrible at football. Why do you want me to? He was a science teacher. Why do you want me to play? We're in a science class. He said, oh, I don't want you to play football. I want to play rugby just in defense of football. And per expectation, I was sent off within 15 yeah. minutes of the game. <laughs> but it, but it, it did sufficient damage to the opposing striker. I suppose that it worked for, um, for Mr. Dobson. Mr. Dobson. So Danny Meyer, what I'm taking away yeah. here is Danny Meyer missed the quadrant of uh, will but shouldn't. And that is where both you and I probably fall in those respective sports. All right. All right. Will but shouldn't. Let's stay there. Let's let's talk about uh, recent trips. So it was the 4th of July yesterday. It was. Independence Day. I'm going to come back to that in yep. a moment. Um, but I just want to do a comparison of trips. So I, I thought I was very clever yesterday. At the last minute on Airbnb, <laughs> I found, um, as you know, I'm not a big fan of the public holidays. I don't like forced family fun. Sure. Uh, so... So I found this little camper uh, that, based upon the photographs, was overlooking the Potomac River as it comes into the Chesapeake Bay. Just like magnificent setting. And it had air conditioning and you could you could take pets. So I messaged Elizabeth and said, I've got this place, pack some wine and we'll go and it'll just be quiet. No fireworks, no people dressed up in Union Jack, and Union Jack in uh, Stars and Stripes sure. or any of that nonsense. Um, we'll just read, we'll drink a bottle of wine. Sleep by the beach. Yeah. So I'm just scoring points across the board. Okay. So we pull up to this place. And as we know, having a media team, angles are everything, <laughs> frames are everything. We pull up. This camper is like right on the edge of a marina where the least attractive, inebriated people are singing at the tops of their voices. It's only four o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, yeah. And I realized there's a stage right next to this camper where they're going to do the 4th of July announcements. <laughs> it gets worse. Uh, um, there are better. seven Harley motorcycles parked right next to the camper, which guarantees these drunk guys right at the point we're going to sleep are going to fire up these Harleys, these kind of six-year-old uh, wannabe Hells Angels. And then finally... There was the most enormous, it was almost shark size, dead fish planted right on the beach. It was massive. It would, would have been too big, big for me to move. That was slowly rotting. And so the stench of <laughs> dead fish was going to it. Um, yeah, anyway, we slept at home last night and uh, everything was great. Um, wow. So that that was my latest trip. Yeah. But you've been in Monaco. Yeah, I yeah. was in I was in Monaco. Um, I did some gallivanting uh, across Europe and and ended in Monaco. Um, I here I'll, I'll park this. Have you been? Uh, a long time ago. A long yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, Monaco is I think only fun in a anything longer than a blitz of a time period, right? It's a medium to long term, only fun for rich people. Like like yacht money rich 
or friends with yacht money rich, right? Like if you show up to Monaco on a yacht, I think you're good. You're good. Or if you can afford to buy a yacht while you're in Monaco, <laughs> you're also good. Uh, for everyone else, perhaps worth seeing, but ah, it 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 was beautiful in a way that that felt uh, distinctly inaccessible to mere mortals like myself and the buddies. I so, how does with. the zoo relationship work in the sense that? You're going. Did you feel you were going to the zoo to stare at rich people on their yachts, or do you feel that it was rich people on their yachts staring at the poor people in the zoo staring at them? Which mm. which which direction is the cage in this? Wow. In this sense, honestly, I'm not. Mm. I there 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 were bars. There 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 was a cage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. I'm not sure if I was being kept in or kept out. To your point, I don't know. A little bit of both, I would imagine. Um, yeah, and it was it was fat. I mean, we we saw the uh, the horse jumping championships were there, yeah. um, which had just come from Paris, and then um, the uh, Formula One track is yeah. right there at the corner of where the horse jumping. And so, like, at, right by all of the yachts, and so we watched. But what what I what I actually realized is I was pointing out yachts to my buddy John, and I kind of pointed at one. I was like, I. I'd drive that. And he said, why would you take that? I want that one. And he pointed at the bigger one. And the conclusion, not a, it wasn't an epiphany, but I, I said to him, there is always a bigger yacht. There's one that's not here at the pier because it's out there because it can't fit here. Right? There is always. So even when you're at that echelon, there is always another thing that somebody can flex on you with. And, and so that was, uh, I found that to be interesting. But shifting gears a little bit, staying on transportation, um, Flexing, <laughs> my question, what's the price of fun? Because for 197 euros, you can take a helicopter from Monaco to the Nice airport. It is a seven-minute helicopter ride. And the answer is no, I didn't do it. But I didn't do it only because while I was booking it, I found out that my third bag was going to cost me like another 200 euros. And so I have figured out the price of fun. It's 200 euros, but not 400 euros. Well, you are not at all leaning into the stereotype of Americans and carbon footprint and not giving a damn. Yes. I didn't do you it. Should have, you should have back, hitchhiked on the back of a train that was electric powered. I did take the train. I generator. took the train back to the airport. So what you're describing is the, it's, it's the keeping up with the Joneses effect, right? Um, which is very well documented in economics. But I think it's worth reminding people, uh, as you are seeking joy through wealth, um, yes, money can bring you happiness. Yeah. It's very well documented that it can. Uh, for as long as you are on the breadline, right? So if your basic needs aren't being met, and I would count those as food, water, shelter, uh, healthcare. It's Maslow's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. But once you're above that level, then what you what happens is the Jones's effect kicks in, which is the second that you make more money and you move to the nicer neighborhood or you buy the nicer car, I believe that the number is three days. The feeling of success relative to your last peer group lasts for around three days before you re-anchor with your new neighborhood and other people who drive fancy cars and you're trying to exceed that. So it never stops as rich as you become, which yeah. I think is why you see some of the behaviors of the the Musks and the and the um, Bezos, uh, Bezos and, and, yeah. and the equivalents. Uh, and even in that sense, yeah, so... So, yeah, even if you have the biggest yacht in the Med, at some point, you're going to bump into the U.S. 6th Fleet and go, oh, oh but, but I want an aircraft carrier. <laughs> <laughs> and 
you, you know, you reach out. So it just it never stops. It never ever stops. And watching watching people on this path is sort of analytically heartbreaking because yeah. it just you the science and a lot of these people are working jobs on a mathematic basis but money is a measure of um of aptitude unless unless you're proving a point against a base level that you grew up with if, if it's intrinsic yeah it's almost like golf if you're scoring against your own score and that's what you're measuring it works really well right if it is uh relative to other people that re-anchoring effect is um is overwhelming yeah so all right given the the economic exercise that has been done right and uh, there was that what 2008 2010 study that said yeah after 75 grand your happiness doesn't increase yep. any do you think you could be at some modicum of wealth and not compete right like could you get your yacht and just be good yeah i mean i think i think we've done that it's an inflatable paddleboard i mean uh, but quite seriously i think yeah, we have yeah. because once, once you choose, once you realize that you can't do interesting and meaningful work and compete on wealth at the same time, because those, those are contradictory, right? If, hmm. if you Tell are going more. to just chase money yeah. in, a, in a world like ours, you can make incredible money, but you're working for um, organizations that gain greatly through negative outcomes, not necessarily positive outcomes. You you could you could. So for instance, you can't do good in the world and 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 accumulate wealth. No, I I think you you can. I don't think you can accumulate extreme wealth. Okay. Because extreme wealth is yeah. You could be. We could be working advising the Kazakh government right now on on energy exports and how right. to avoid environmental regulations. We could be made. And we get these offers from time to time. We yeah. could make a, a a can load of money doing that. But um, and also there's a supply and demand. More people want to work on the meaningful stuff, so mm -hmm. there's greater supply, and therefore the price lowers versus those who, yeah, yeah. And of course, what we're yeah. So I, I do think I do think it applies. But that relative nature. So this is anchoring bias, right? It's yeah. it's what we measure relative to. We're also seeing in France this this past week or so with the riots, which is you have essentially similar to. Uh, the summer of social reckoning here in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, a shooting of uh, of a 17-year-old in a suburb of Paris that has led to social unrest. But I think it's very different from what's happened in the United States at the same time. Um, in this case, it is largely immigrants and next-generation immigrants from North Africa where there is, the nuance is so different here because the French empire, particularly around North Africa, mm. actually had representation in the French parliament in, the, in, that, yeah. in that phase of the Republic. So you were sort of indirectly citizens of France. So you've had this mass migration. And of course, you sit there as French citizens and as residents of France, it's very easy. And it is very easy for me to say, hey, we have to, have equal civic rights in terms of dealing with the police, right? And so you can hold that in that frame. Yeah. A different frame is, so relative to other French citizens, it's terrible. And actually, President Macron has come out and said that, right? Um, now, that's separate from sort of the looting and the violence that's happened subsequent to that. There's also a picture of if you were back in Algeria, mm. your civil rights would be nowhere close to the rights that you have living in um, the poor suburbs of, of Paris or other French cities. Yeah. And that's the reason that you're going. 
And so what's the, as you sort of, if your job is to construct different arguments and the, the fundraising in support of the family of the 17 year old who was shot relative to the fundraising for the police officer that's been fired mm. in France, and maybe that's a measure sometimes of public sentiment, mm. is of a magnitude different. Like yeah. we're talking about like 10 times as much. For the police officer for or the for the family? Officer, really? For the police okay. officer, yeah. yeah. And I think that's where it starts to be different because your starting point is so the cultural identity of the place, so in the United States, as we've just come through the 4th of July, whether it's true or not, but the identity is that melting pot. Mm -hmm. It's a great place for it. And France is arguably the opposite. Um, and anyway, so I, I just think that sort of, that measuring, I don't know how we went from yachts in Monaco to, well, I do know how we got there. Yeah. But it's, it's like, what are we measuring it against? And I don't, before I get hammered on this subject, my <laughs> job isn't, my job right now isn't to express my opinion. <laughs> I'll express my opinion later. You know, no, yeah. So the the I mean, I think this conversation, the uh, anchoring bias of of extreme wealth, right, and then the a similar uh, relativity in civil rights or rights of a whether you're in Algeria or you're in France, and then similarly to what the 4th of July is here in America, and I think the um, philosophical debate that surrounds this holiday, right? <laughs> Holy day, if you will. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I sat with some James Baldwin this, this weekend and the, the quote from Notes of a Native Son, I love America more than any country in this world and exactly for this reason I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. All right, like that's James Baldwin's quote. Uh, exactly for this reason I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. So is, is the 4th of July a day to set aside all criticism of a country that you're here willingly? I was born into but uh, could have stayed in Monaco I suppose and just been um, we choose to be here, and so is the 4th of July a day to acknowledge the vision of America, or is it uh, like the other 364 days of the year, a day to wish that it did better? And so, I sit with that often. So Lincoln had an answer to that. Mm. So Lincoln argued that the Constitution, including its amendments, is rock solid. That's yeah. stone and that the Declaration of Independence around which 4th of July is anchored sure. is always aspirational. Mm. And you have to see those documents as separate. Now, mm -hmm. maybe that was a convenient workaround because um, at the time Lincoln was saying that, it excluded um, even if we had his desire to enfranchise black males, yeah. uh, we were still excluding 51% of the population. So I, I wrote this on, on LinkedIn yesterday. And I, as you know, I don't take social um, <laughs> social metrics very seriously at all. In fact, I'm very dismissive of, of them. But I do think there's one, the ratio between impressions and engagement, I find very interesting. Uh -huh. And the, let's just say this post had a very high impression rate. And relative to that, a low engagement rate, which means people are viewing it. And I interpret this as going like, oh, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Yeah. So I wrote, around the state in 1776, a brave group of pale men declared the right of around 6% of the population of the American colonies to have the same rights as their equivalents in Great Britain. Yeah. Since then, both countries have been on long parallel journeys to extend liberty, rights, and suffrage to all of their respective populations. Let's keep working at it. Happy Independence Day, America, with love of the Brit <laughs> contingent of envoy. 
Postscript. Remember, Down With The Brits is a statement for every day, not just the fourth. We're always up to something nefarious. But the but that, unfortunately, this is just fact, is that, yeah, the Declaration of Independence was a very brave act yeah. by a group of people seeking rights for about 6% of the US population, which included or excluded most white males. And yeah. so- Because you had to be landowning. You had to be landowning. Yeah. It was uh, uh, 40 shillings of land in, in the UK was, was the standard. You had to own the equivalent of 40 shillings of land to have a voice. And actually it wasn't by legislation in the UK that women's uh, suffrage was excluded. It just didn't happen. Just so it wasn't. It wasn't that, that much. There land. wasn't a document yeah. that said women can't vote. They, they, <laughs> but they did. couldn't. Yeah, I, it was one of those. Wow. So yeah, I just, I just, I think that's um, the Fourth of July. So, <laughs> but it is a little bit awkward as well. Now I'm going to set aside the number of Americans who ask Brits that are based here on the Fourth of July if we do too you celebrate have a the Fourth of, of July. July. No, the, the question isn't do you celebrate. It's do you have a Fourth of July? Oh. To which we're forced to reply, yes, we do, and a third and a fifth as well. <laughs> Um, but no, we don't celebrate it. We sort of, it, it is recognized, right? It is, it is Independence Day in, uh, we don't call it the 4th of July. We'd call it America, American Independence Day because remember, with a history like ours, there's around 50 countries that have Independence Day. Day from my ancestors. So. Who can we not get a call back from today because they're celebrating independence from us? That's yeah. the question you have to ask. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So right. anyway, the one line that I did love is that the 4th of July is like New Year's Eve of the summer. Is that the expectations? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at Perry now, who threw his phone in a in a in the river yesterday on a dock at a party. Is is just the expectations are cranked so high over really what's going to happen on this on this holiday? And uh, yeah, anyway, okay, they really are. You want to talk about? Let's let's just go back to uh, Europe for a second. Oh, you want to talk about drinking Europe, water? I think. Let's go. Um, yeah. yeah, 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 drinking water. Yeah. So. Uh, of course, I, I just uh, like it was half work, half play. I had a buddy getting married, and and so I was I was across Europe for I don't know ten twelve days last last week. Um, water is hard to come by, like drinking water. I have found that um, I don't know if there's a societal thing of Americans carrying water bottles here, and like everybody fills up their Nalgene, you just have your water bottle and you pound it all day, but. I had to explicitly ask for water at just about every restaurant that yeah. I went to. And Lord knows still water is seemingly harder to come by than sparkling water. And certainly cold water is is <laughs> damn near impossible to find or like ice to come with it. Um, but it was at the point that I asked for water that people would kind of look at me. And then I finished a bottle. Like I just crushed a bottle one night at dinner and asked for another. And his response was just another. <laughs> You want to hydrate? That, yeah, it was it was wild, and so I, I kind of got to this place as I do when I reacclimate to being over there. Is uh, like charging, de- you know, the rule when you're on the road. If there is an outlet, charge your device. Yes, uh, water is the same. If there's water, fill up your bottle. And I found myself doing that. Like I would sacrifice drinking at the meal to put more water in my water bottle for later when I was back on the road. Um, it was, but that decision that has to be made. It didn't ever feel like there was enough water to like drink my fill and fill my bottle. And that was weird. I don't know if that's a cultural thing. Yeah, so I, I, at risk of adding to my racist repertoire here. Um, <laughs> is that a thing? Scott's racist repertoire? I don't think that's a section. It's becoming a thing. The, um, I believe the history to mm. bottled water yeah. is in France, where it started with like the Perriers, mm. that it was an exclusive water, but it was also, when I was a kid and you went on holiday, you never drank the tap water. 
because it wasn't if you're in Greece or Spain or France, and this is probably, as these words are coming out of my mouth, it's probably just racist. But you would drink, uh, you drink bottled water, you wouldn't drink out of the tap. And then, I'm sure that's not the case now. It probably wasn't the case then. But sparkling water was your way to check that the cheating Greeks hadn't just filled up a bottle of water with tap water. Ah. If it was carbonated, it was. And I think that, at least from the Brit perspective, that's why you skewed to sparkling water. But that was long before. You never had bottled water at home in the shops or anything like that. And and yeah, you probably saw all of the environmentalism push while you're in Europe. But bottled water has remained that thing. Yeah. You don't have many public water fountains and no. there's not places you can refill and all of those. But reusable bags, yeah. it'd be hard to find a plastic grocery yeah, bag, I imagine. Wild. Even at my hotel, I would have to ask them to fill up my water bottle for me. There was no tap out yeah. in the lobby, et cetera. I was just like, I just want water in my bag. I just, I just want to like charge devices. Look, if crazy. you haven't learned by now, beer is for hydration. <laughs> water serves no purpose whatsoever. Uh, okay, we're going we're gonna to stay with travel for a little bit, but okay. you wanted to talk about on NASA's license. Oh, yeah, another observation. I was just, I was in full observation yeah. mode as I was gallivanting. Um, na- whoever does marketing at NASA needs a raise and a hug and like uh, probably a, a celebratory yacht um, because NASA is everywhere. Throughout Europe, there were NASA hats, beanies, T-shirts, uh, like cross-strap bags. Like I just saw NASA swag out the wazoo as I traveled, and I was like, "You, you all know that's ours, right? That's that's I, ours." So I have a bit of an answer to this for you, hmm. and I I saw you add this to the list. Yeah, is I was told by an executive of NASA. Yeah. That actually the opposite is true. They have no control over their license and the brand, and don't ah. regulate it, and therefore. It's almost just, it's out there. Fascinating. And everybody's using the logo all over the place. Okay. But I think there's another part, and that was partly why they brought back the uh, the NASA, what do they call it, the NASA uh, Caterpillar or something, the N, like the retro mm. one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it's called. And it came back as a result. NASA started using that again after it was being used in fashion labels all over the place and fa- in, in clothing design. I call it the, cat- the worm, the NASA worm, I think it is. The the meatball. Me, no, the meatball is That's the big the circular red, one. Uh, the round, red, white, yeah. and blue. Is but the, the one meatball. from the 60s yeah. where it's like the just the lettering. Uh, uh, the worm. Yeah. The worm. The NASA worm. That's cool. So, but I do think, as you say, like it's ours. I and do this does worm. does apply about like, yeah, the worm's cool. Yeah, it? As it applies to the social like expectations that in a way, the world or the Western world mm-hmm. Almost thought of NASA as its, as, as because it was yeah. all a space race, right? Yeah. And America was leading the the West, yeah. and and so. But I'm not sure that that the rest of the world thinks of NASA's success in the same way you would think of Elon Musk's success right. or SpaceX or Blue Origin or yeah. It was it was it was fascinating to see, and I'd imagine. I mean, there were kids wearing this thing. They're yeah. not having this visceral kind of recollection no, of the space cool. race, right? It's just cool. Just to be yeah. clear, I don't have a visceral... Re- I'm not that old. Like, I... No comment. <laughs> I'm going to leave that one. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I found that fact. It makes so much more sense that it's actually not regulated. Because if it were, somebody was just crushing it over yeah, yeah, time. Yeah. Um, but that it's just in the public domain is even more interesting. It's just and, out. Yeah. 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 On it. that note, I don't know if you've seen the, the data, but um, Europe is full. Huh. Um, tourism has just gone. Those, what do they call them? Retribution trips, retribution of COVID, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it is, it is not a good time to be freedom on the plane, rides. Being, I think is what it. they call them. And as we're talking about the aircraft being full, yeah. and just tourist cities are full, and mm. and for this, again, we get to blame Meta 
as the owner of Instagram because it's just these hordes of people all trying to take a photograph that 200,000 other people have also taken the exact same yeah. photograph. But we're devastating these places. And there has to be an, an anti-movement to that. Actually, that could be our pointless plug. Hmm. But before we get there, let's talk about Scott Kirby at United Airlines, uh, who's, who's had a bit of a bad week. So, look, we, we've we rallied in defense of airlines in the past and taken a lot of flack over it. Yeah. Uh, we're going to do the same thing for United. Uh, we forget that flying those metal things through the air is actually very complex and complicated. United had a bad weather week. Scott Kirby at the beginning of, sorry, midway last week, who's the CEO of United Airlines, and I'm told by people who know him, he's a very, very nice and smart guy. Mm -hmm. uh, but he gained a lot of praise because he wrote an, an email to all staff that said, amongst other things, that he is very proud of the team. And it was sort of praised as a CEO saying that he was proud of United staff. He also kind of threw the FAA under the bus, who came out pretty strong. It was all to do with Newark Airport and things. But then his week got worse, and I suspect you and I are going to disagree about this, <laughs> because on Friday he had to issue an apology, because on the prior Wednesday at the peak of the, of the mess that was United Airlines, um, he had taken a private jet from Teterboro Airport in, it's in New Jersey, right? Just outside of New York, from mm -hmm. Teterboro to Denver, and hadn't flown United Airlines to fly back. And what he said was, there was not seat availability and he needed to get to Denver, so he flew private. But he regrets the act. As as British exams would say, discuss. <laughs> oh. <laughs> a big blank sheet of paper. I didn't he, he's Yeah, I mean, you just come back from Monaco. You would have taken the private jet, wouldn't you? If you were CEO of United Airlines. Yeah, but I'll tell you why. All right. Um, be, because there there is this, I think, across... Uh, Western society and, and capitalist-driven society, we're we're trying to recalibrate this obscene wealth and CEOs of organizations making more. And so we're trying to pull CEO down to every person. Um, that doesn't seem practical. <laughs> it doesn't actually make sense because Scott Kirby still has a – how much would you say United makes a year? I mean, they're the – In terms of profit? Yeah. I'll look it up by you. So we're talking hundreds of millions. Yeah. I mean, revenue in the billions. Sure. Billion dollar organization. Scott Kirby at the helm. Scott Kirby needs to get to a place. I don't care what that, what he needed to get there for. A meeting, vacation to see, you know, his third family. I, I don't care what it was. Scott Kirby needed to get to a place and he runs a billion dollar organization. Yeah, of course he would fly private. Like that, that would be how he solves the problem. Take, um, I don't know. What's the... T-Mobile CEO, uh, the, the, that that weird guy, uh, John John Legere. If there's an outage on T-Mobile and John Legere needs to make a phone call and he uses a Sprint or AT and T device to make that call, are people going to castrate him the same way? Like, uh, there's this anchoring to the industry in which Scott Kirby is operating and the way that he chose to to travel. And that, to me, feels disingenuous in the thing that we're upset about. And what we're really saying is Scott Kirby can afford to fly private, and the rest of us poor folks can't. And he exercised that, uh, I don't, his ability to do that. And like that seems like a silly thing for us to be up in arms about. You should have sat in the airport with the rest of the mere mortals, is what we're saying. And I don't know. He's, yeah. I, 
it's it's well within his right to fly private. He's so United's revenue to. was about forty five billion in twenty two, and its net income was three quarters of a billion. So yeah, there's well, so I couldn't disagree more. Hmm. Could not disagree more. Carry on. So I agree. If you are the leader of a government agency and you're working on something critical, actually, if it was the head of the FAA or it was Pete Buttigieg, I, can't, I still can't say his name <laughs> after twelve years in the public. Not help you. Um, and you need to get back to Washington. I kind of get it. He is within driving distance of Newark Airport, one of his hubs. I suspect that United Airlines has the infrastructure for him to run virtual meetings from one of its hubs as it goes through. I think this was a workaround, and because I can, I will. And sometimes the optics do matter. And I and I agree, it can swing the other way. The United Kingdom is ridiculous about this. Every time that the Prime Minister flies on a Royal Air Force jet, there is this huge, the Guardian is always writing, and if he'd taken the train, the carbon footprint would have been like, and I'm sorry, like it's my, we're a much smaller country than we were, much less influential. There's still a nuclear football kicking around on this thing. Maybe we let the Prime Minister fly in an Air Force jet. But the... But this is, yeah, I think, and I think the contradiction, because he will have been drafting that email at the same time. And I think it's one of those that you probably, but I do think this goes back to chief of staff roles. Mm. And we're going to be doing a, we're, gonna, we're in the middle of building a training course for chiefs of staff at the yeah. moment, which is, is it really the CEO's fault or is it? Do you think he made that decision? Well, he may not have. Yeah. Like if if you're at that rank, you're typically just getting on whatever you. I need you to get me from point A to B. I don't care how I need to be at point B. But somewhere, and I wouldn't put it on the on the scheduler, right? Because most of these execs have have assistants who are schedulers. Their job is just to get their principal to wherever it should be. But somewhere in that chain should have been somebody with a political with a small P lens that that um said no. Scott, don't, all right, don't get on that plane. So, well, I'm going to ask the real question: Is it Scott? Don't get on that plane, or is it Scott? Don't let anybody know you got on that plane. Well, I think that was the former. Who knows? We don't know. I, we don't know. Anyway, Scott, you had a rough week, and by all accounts, you're a super chap. And sorry, and also you can be simultaneously make a mistake and be proud of your team at the same time. There we go. Says he with a long list of those moments. All right, pointless plug. As we we're talking about. Uh, digital connection um, and the sort of anti-movement of the grid. Let's uh, Faraday cages for phones. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. So it's made by a company called Refugee. Uh, yeah. Their website is refugeeprivacy.com. And it's a leather bound. They call it a ghost sleeve. And it's a Faraday cage for your phone. Huh. So that you, for all of the promises that the, the social media companies give that we're not listening. I think we've all had experiences that suggest something different. Um, yeah, so you put, you put your phone in this in this wallet and it essentially kills it. Acts like a Faraday cage. Well, it wow. is a Faraday cage. And so it just, it won't operate. It won't signal, send out sight, signal. and sound, all blocked. Yeah. Your phone when you want it, none of it's tracking when you don't. And I feel it was one of those where, remember we talked, we, we've been talking for months now about yeah. this underlying trend of privacy. Absolutely. And I looked at it, I was like, I don't need that. And then... Um, I had a conversation with a client about whether they wanted to be on a, a CEO track or a CTO track. Mm-hmm. And I have just been, I, I didn't write anything down at yeah. all. Bombarded with ads for executive education to be on a CTO track, which I have no desire to do. 
Yeah. <laughs> and it's always my it's always my joke, right? Is is if you want to test this out, just talk about going on vacation to somewhere that you don't want to go and see what your ads look like. Yeah. So for these purposes, I'm desperate to go on holiday to Wales. I think Wales would be a great place to go on vacation. <laughs> um, I'm just thinking, do I go to Swansea or do I go to Cardiff? Which of these destinations in Wales should, or Aberystwyth? And let's see what shows up on mine. Oh, here we go. It's, uh, it's going to show up on mine, too. Anyway, I Thank thought you. I didn't want one of these, but increasingly I suspect I'm going to be asking Vera to order me one. I want one. Well, because so I, I want somebody else to order it so they so that you yeah. know, the conspiracy theorists don't not have it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's come back to the United States uh, from Europe uh, in our Faraday cage, so nobody knows we're here. And uh, the Supreme Court, so the Supreme Court gave a verdict last week uh, ending affirmative action in universities. We may disagree about this as well. Oh, maybe, maybe not. So no longer can universities give preference in any way to people based upon skin color or ethnicity. Um, it has been deemed illegal. And uh, that means that, well, that means that. What do you think about that? I got in trouble for, I was on a panel a year, year and a half ago, this global thing, um, a conference, global, yeah, it's global conference, but a lot of cultures represented. And, and the, the thing that I said is I believe, I said, I don't believe in a, in equality and the whole room stopped. Yeah. And, and I followed up with, I believe in meritocracy as long as we adjust for bias. And to me, that is what affirmative action has done for so many years. Mm. It kind of, it not kind of, it at least the intent was to recalibrate the bias that goes into, you know, the studies about uh, Jeff versus uh, Jamarcus yeah. on a resume that is otherwise identical being offered the job to Jeff instead of Jamarcus, or that uh, that that cost being uh, the entry point salary being lower for Jamarcus, the the black sounding name, um, same has happened for women along gender lines and so on and so forth. And so, affirmative action as as a vehicle by which we might adjust for the bias, particularly when it comes to college education, which for the longest time was kind of a ticket to. Uh, the next tier yeah. of wealth and uh, just being able to provide for one's family and often several generations of a family. Uh, so to end that is to, I think, similar to what we see on um, anti-gay and anti-transgender bills, it's the, if we don't talk about it, it won't exist, is what it feels like we've just done with affirmative action. If we don't talk about bias, if we don't talk about mm, folks yeah. needing uh, a, a platform by which to start from because they've been put behind for so long, then we will have this meritocratic institution that is higher ed in America. And uh, that seems short-sighted and ill-advised. That for me, and so I, I, the the Supreme Court has made a couple decisions that mm, I'm not seeing eye to eye on. Um, but this is a big one that the underlying ramifications I don't think we will truly appreciate for a decade or two, and then we're going to say, "Oh, maybe we fucked up." It's mm. kind of where I am. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure what I think about it. Mm. I it's um, I agree with you on the shifting the starting blocks in the race. And I think it, I would agree with you that I think it's paid off significantly. Of course, the case was brought by Asian Americans, which mm -hmm. they, this case has divided um, 
it's di- divided minorities in the country. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the case, Asian Americans over-index on education across the board. Um, and so I think that's interesting. I, I think I'm against ending affirmative action. Yeah. What I'm definitely in favor of ending though is legacy preference in American colleges, which to mm. me is outrageous. And I don't think Americans understand that this is a uniquely American phenomenon. Let me just say this again, in no other country does this happen. So for those of you listening overseas, if you are a graduate of Harvard University or Yale or Brown or almost every private college except for Johns Hopkins of the top tier, this applies to me, I'm a graduate of Georgetown University, and the reason that my kids will not go to Georgetown University is because they will be given preference for a place, so if two candidates go, if, if Ace Jr. and Scott Jr. apply to Georgetown University and they have the same qualifications and the same skills and the same aptitude, then Scott Jr. would get their place at Georgetown University because their parent is an alumni of that college. <laughs> okay, that's fucking outrageous. And the reason they do it, yeah. also if I was you're about a funder, <laughs> you don't even need to be an alumni. If you're a big donor to these yeah. colleges, yeah, yeah, yeah. you will also get preference for your family members. Now, there's an argument that they're private entities and they should do that. But I, I beg, if you are a graduate of any of these colleges, and I say this to Georgetown University that rings me up on a regular basis asking for money, is they're not, well, they don't now because I've told them this, they're not getting a cent until they stop legacy preference. In mm. fact, I'm going to donate to Johns Hopkins. <laughs> Every time Georgetown <laughs> call, I'm going to donate to Johns Hopkins. It is outrageous that... Like we are embedding that privilege as it goes through. So please, if you're an alumni of one of these fancy schools and they call you up, please instead donate to a college that doesn't have legacy preference. I don't know that we have time to to fully, not even debate this, but (laughs) is college a public good or is it a private institution? Well, I think that might be the difference, right? Because this doesn't happen in other countries because they're largely publicly funded. Because if, if there is a chance that I can increase the revenue from donation by saying, you have affinity for this institution and I'm going to embed that into the rest of your family, there, there, is, there is money to be made there. Now, whether we should, and and back to what affirmative action was supposed to be balancing is, can we give those who don't have, didn't have the opportunity to to get into the legacy pipeline, so on and so forth. Yeah, and so but what I'm, we've done is just done. We've taken affirmative action away, and we've left legacy preference there. So I, I think the look. timing for this. By the way, I've got some interesting allies in there. George W. Yeah. Bush is on record as saying, and, "Is he really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Get rid uh, of him." He said this back in like 2014. Might yeah. have been even before that. And and the. This this idea that we're going to remove affirmative action but keep legacy preference in place, while whatever the universities are are saying. That said, though, if you're looking for the most talented, mm. it now becomes interesting because if we, if you're really taking the long term view and you want the most talented kids that are out there, yeah, now you're going to put much more emphasis on the college essay. Mm-hmm. You're not going to focus upon SAT scores or what's yep. the other one? GRE, uh, SAT and GRE, uh, yeah, GRE, G- 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 whatever. Yeah. These uh, standardized tests we because we know that if you're wealthy, you can buy tutors to game, essentially game the system, game the game. Yep. And so if you if you're t- if you're a trustee and you're taking a long term view of the institution, actually you're going to disregard all of those and you're going to want to know much more about the life narrative of the individual, which will include their experiences based upon 
their race or gender or sexual orientation. I just, so, I don't know, we'll see. But also, I would, personally, I wouldn't do athletic scholarships. I don't understand that either, but that's a whole other thing. because um, you weren't good enough. For those who are interested in um, the Supreme Court, as much as it pains me to promote something by Dak Shepard, because I, I reluctantly like him. Wow. I reluctantly like him. Wow. I don't want to like him. I reluctantly like him. Um, on our journey to and from <laughs> this said camper yesterday, <laughs> I listened to an episode of Armchair Expert, the podcast Armchair Expert, and they had Michael Waldman on, yeah. who was talking through the Supreme Court and... Um, it's construction and what's involved in it. It was excellent. I recommend it to anybody. We'll, we'll post a link in, in the details. But he was explaining, and I hadn't really thought about this, that, that the current majority of the Supreme Court have just self-described as originalists mm. around the Constitution. So what did the founding fathers think mm -hmm. and believe at the time that they wrote it? And you interpret it through, through that vein. But it hadn't sort of hit me, of, of course, back to that 1776. These are the same founding fathers who were owners of enslaved people and didn't believe in women's suffrage. And so just the very concept of being an originalist is, and, and not believing precedent. Again, I think to, to those not from here, it's a little mind blowing. And from those here, um, you know, maybe we should understand that better. Link to that though. Um, and two more things, two more things on the United States. And then let's, let's finish on South America actually. Okay. So, a beautiful graphic that I tripped over the other day was the relationship of uh, livestock to people in the United States. So it's this gorgeous <laughs> map based upon U.S. Department of Agriculture data, which counties have more livestock than people. And then it's color-coded, whether it's chickens, cows, pigs, or a mix of, of them all. And what is remarkable, look at this map. Do you think that's the majority or the minority of counties in the United States by geography? Minority. What? Oh, is that? Uh, yeah, the yeah, color yeah, shade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's majority. So the majority of the land in the United States by county yeah. is... I thought you were talking population. Oh, sorry. Like, no, no, like no. Yeah. There's no people. Is, is there are more livestock than people. Yeah. Which also applies to New Zealand, the whole country. There's like 30 million <laughs> sheep and 3 million people or something. But, but I think it does explain some of the tensions in the country. Mm of like how clustered when you see these maps about the divide and things. And I'm, re I'm reminded um, actually by a friend, <laughs> but I'm not sure we should mention him. Uh, yeah, we should. He's retired now. Scott Bollinger, who's oh, a former Scott. government official in South Dakota. Bollinger. Is that, you know, he'd remind us that he's living in a state that is bigger than England with a population that's smaller than Richmond's. Our Richmond or your Richmond? Our Richmond. No, so 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 greater the metro yeah. Richmond area yeah. has significantly larger population than South Dakota, but South Dakota is bigger than England, which has a population of fifty five million people. And so, you know, I think we just you know, as we're trying to understand America, just a reminder that the majority of counties have in many cases more cows and chickens than they do people. Wow. Let's um let's stay with mm, that's not how I want to make that segue. <laughs> let's stay with uh <laughs> America and touch on politics for a second. I thought you were going to go with New Zealanders and sheep, but whatever. Keep going. I thought about that too. Yeah. Um, you said you might donate to Chris Christie's campaign. Yeah. Talk to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just a reminder, um, I, I am a resident of the United States, but not a citizen. Therefore, I pay taxes with no representation because I don't get to vote. Um, but I do think actually somebody needs to check this before I go to jail. I do think I'm allowed to donate to campaigns. 
I think. <laughs> I think. All right. um, Stenson. But I'll double to Stenson's help. Stenson. So, but I would consider donating Chris Christie's campaign. And I encourage people to listen to interviews with him. Yeah. He is um, essentially playing the role of calling out what is being said in private by the other candidates, which mm -hmm. is they don't think uh, President Trump is appropriate for office and almost all of his former cabinet have said the same thing and nobody will say it publicly and Chris Christie is saying I am and to be fair to him he is and uh, in order to get into the debates he needs a minimum number of people to donate to his campaign so I'm not saying I'd like Chris Christie to be president I'm also not saying I wouldn't want Chris Christie to be president um, and I, I do actually remember the flack that he took for welcoming a democratic president to a state during the, you remember the, the hurricane, Hurricane yeah. Sandy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I respected him for that. He's got, I was going to say he, he has a history of being embroiled in, um, uh, corruption issues in the state of New Jersey, but then I'm just going to say state of New Jersey and that provides context for the experience. Um, but the, but I do think like having somebody in the debate stage who's going to land punches around real things could be interesting. So I'm thinking about donating to his campaign if Stinson says that's legal. All right. Huh. I, I, I have nothing to add to that. It's just, it's fascinating. And <laughs> I think that aligns with a role that I think you play often. I'm thinking about a couple of campaigns in local politics. Not local politics, but local movements. Oh, I do do that. Yeah. Yeah. Where yeah. you just prop them up so they get the platform and mm. then you let the fight happen however mm -hmm. it's going to play out. <laughs> oh, there should be a word for that. Yeah. Yeah. You got waned. I don't, I don't back particular campaigns. We back making sure there's a platform for the campaign to be, yeah, yeah. full, forthright, forthright. All right. Let's end with this. Um, football versus soccer. My word, did you become popular on the internet oh, as a God. result of a photograph of you in London uh, last week or the week before? So so let's describe who's in the photograph and how it happened. Okay. All right. Um, so I, I was on German Street. Um, okay. in, the land of suits. In, in London, yep. the, the suit land. Um, I was getting some shirts. I walk out of Were the you shirt literally shop. buying shirts in I German Street? I was buying Street. shirts, yeah. <laughs> Shopping. Um, Monaco Yachts shirts from German Street. Mom was around the corner at Fortnum and Mason, and, and we were just, yeah. we're, okay. you know, we're yeah. doing London. Um, so I walk out and I see uh, Cristo Fernandez, mm -hmm. uh, who is across the street. And for those who don't know who Cristo Fernandez, because I just had to look up his name, uh, he plays the ever popular Danny Rojas on Ted Lasso. Danny Rojas, Danny Rojas. <laughs> Football is live. <laughs> yeah. So that guy, that guy, for, for all who celebrate. <laughs> Perry? The, yep. Oh, uh, yeah. So yeah. Perry has turned around in the studio he and he faces us now. And I can see him when he laughs at me looking like an idiot. Anyway, so I run into Danny Rojas. Um, and and my, my approach, typically, if I see someone of some fame, is to simply say, hey, I'm a fan of your work. And that's what I said. And Danny Rojas was, or Cristo Fernandez was, he like it gave me a fist bump and then a dap and then a hug and like was just lovely. And so we chatted for a second and we ended up taking a selfie and that made it to the internet. And so um, I put on the selfie that I posted to Instagram, football is life. And that sparked Scott and I's age-old, I think American Britain's age-old debate about whether it is soccer or whether it's football. And shall we, shall we debate? Now, the, what strikes me 
every time this pops up is that soccer was y'all's idea. The term soccer comes from you lot. As one was naming footballs, there was rugby football, which came from the rugby school, popularized. Um, And like the late 1800s, not even like well. Yeah, yeah, it was recent. So more recent. You know what happened? You know the history of rugby? No. They were playing football. And somebody picked up the ball and ran with it it at rugby school. That that was literally the foundation of the sport. I love that. And then there's, of course, American football, which we get crap for. And uh, it's actually called gridiron football. So to distinguish from rugby football, to distinguish from association football, which was the governing body uh, that they wrapped around all of the football that was the the soccer, football that was popping up at various uh, institutions, private schools, and and communities. so association football was shortened to uh, association to ASOC and then shortened or colloquialized to soccer. And that you lot did that. You all called it soccer because you have a habit of just cutting things down into smaller <laughs> things and then adding ER to the end, like calling people a rugger, for instance. I don't know. That's you lot, too. So soccer is people a, aren't a rugger. Rugger is the game. That's what I'm saying. You, slang for just it. like soccer, I, don't right? Urban Dictionary rugger. So, I have a feeling that's and, something else. Uh, so you've just made my point for me. <laughs> you called it rugger because you took rugby, which was already short enough, and you yeah. added an ER. And you did the same with association football, shortened association to soccer. So rugger and soccer, two sports that one plays in the UK and the rest of the world has picked up. And so soccer is a term that we got from you, but you felt that it had become too Americanized. So in the 80s or so, you lot went back to football and now you pretend like we're idiots for calling it soccer. It's your word. There's my rant. I will give you this. Football is life though. Uh, In New Zealand, and I think in Australia too, uh, football is rugby. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's it's not actually a worldwide thing, but (laughs) it's just football. All right. I do, I do like footy. <sighs> so coming up next week, we have nothing, but we are going to finish with an apology on behalf of everywhere that's not New York. Because you may remember in when we were recording in LA a few weeks ago, we sound such dickheads. Monaco, German Street, LA. Yeah. You had talked about LA was lame because all of the great things from LA were actually from New York. And you quoted... Blue Bottle and Billy Reed as being stores that you had seen in Los Angeles that were actually from New York. And we may have had a lot of commentary from people that wanted me to remind you that neither of those brands are from New York. Blue Bottle is from the Bay Area, San Francisco, and Billy Reed is from Alabama. Huh. Well, first and foremost, I stand corrected. So if I can't say that, none of this is worth it. Second and foremost, it was less about being right. It was more about making you feel dumb. (laughs) And I will die on that hill every episode. My name is Scott Wayne. And I'm Ace Colwood. And that was Envoy Recorded Radio. We will see you next week. Maybe. Maybe.